What's going on? Hello, Siri. I believe we have stumbled upon something extraordinary. A high-speed chase in the world of elements. Koku, have you lost yourself in one of your black mirror? Dream in a dream? Again? Please don't tell me we are chasing the fifth element now. Ha! Close! We are witnessing a pursuit of a fugitive atom, darting through the periodic table. It's public enemy number one now, with a large bounty on its head. The whole law enforcement is involved. Look at that agility! It is skillfully evading capture by transforming and bonding with other elements, slipping through the grasp of law enforcement. Incredible! It just reacted with oxygen, and now it is bonding with hydrogen. A real master of disguise. This is Catch Me If You Can, a relentless chase across ground, sea, and air. Oh, look! It got trapped by the mangroves. There is nowhere left to hide. Carbon! You are cordoned now. Put your electrons up in the air. Step away from oxygen. You are under arrest for your role in causing global warming and endangering life on Earth. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney, maybe. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will not be appointed for you. Hum, Carbon, the Fugitive. Why such an atom hunt against one of the universe's building blocks? You, humans, seem determined to decarbonize everything. Well, that's what we are here to investigate. Exciting. I wonder what price bounty hunters would demand to capture and seize outlaws such as Carbon. Welcome to 2050 Investors, the podcast that deciphers economic and market megatrends to meet tomorrow's challenges. I'm Koku Agbobois, a head up economics, cross-asset and quant research at Société Générale. In this episode of 2050 Investors, we investigate the history, biography, and track record of carbon from its cosmic origins to its role in climate change. Later in the episode, we discuss carbon credits and natural capital markets with Eric Shumsky, head of Natural Capital Solutions at Société Générale. We ask important questions about how we price carbon, the role that innovative solutions such as voluntary carbon market regulations play in our journey to net zero, and the limits of carbon bounty hunting. Let's start our investigation. Let's go back in time to the very beginning. How far back in time? The dinosaur period? Not quite. Much, much further. I'm talking about the beginning of the universe, the time where time itself was created. The Big Bang. Oh, you mean the let there be light moment. Siri, that's amusing. However, it's true that all our scientific knowledge and discoveries trace back to this moment, 13.7 billion years ago, when our universe was born. I love the way this article from the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, described the birth of the universe on their website. In the first moments after the Big Bang, the universe was extremely hot and dense. As the universe cooled, conditions became just right to give rise to the building blocks of matter. 
the quarks and electrons of which we are all made. A few millionth of a second later, quarks aggregated to produce protons and neutrons. Within minutes, these protons and neutrons combined into nuclei. As the universe continued to expand and cool, things began to happen more slowly. It took 380,000 years for electrons to be trapped in orbits around nuclei, forming the first atoms. These were mainly helium and hydrogen, which are still by far the most abundant elements in the universe. Present observations suggest that the first stars formed from clouds of gas around 150 to 200 million years after the Big Bang. Heavier atoms such as carbon, oxygen and iron have since been continuously produced in the hearts of stars and catapulted throughout the universe in spectacular stellar explosions called supernovae. So, helium is formed by hydrogen nuclei fusing together generating nuclear energy. And carbon is made from helium? Correct. I came across this very interesting documentary, fittingly called The Big Bang and the Birth of Carbon, the unauthorized biography explaining the complex process required to generate carbon atoms. Listen to this. Most of the carbon that makes up us and the Earth and all of the life around us comes from the inside of stars. Stars live by fusing elements in their core. So in mature stars, the core is really dense and gets really, really hot, like 100 million degrees. That's where carbon starts forming. To make carbon, it's actually really complicated. You've got to have an unlikely sort of reaction going on. You've got to have two heliums bashed together, which forms beryllium, but that's really unstable. It doesn't last for long. It basically disintegrates as soon as it is born. And in that fraction of a second, a millionth of a billionth of a second when it's still hanging around, it needs to be hit by another helium. And when that happens, then you form carbon. Incredible. So, carbon's parents and grandparents are hydrogen and helium? In a way, yes. Fun fact. Carbon atomic number is six. It has six electrons, six neutrons, and six protons. And 666 is said to be the number of the beast, if you believe in that sort of thing. So, it should not come as a surprise that carbon would end up creating so much destruction and chaos. Maybe it's not bounting hunters we need, but a proper exorcist. This is quite ironic, but isn't carbon one of the key building blocks of life on Earth? It is. We are literally carbon children. Or more precisely, we are all made of stardust, as astrophysicist Hubert Reeves once wrote. According to an article on NewScientist.com, the most common elements in the universe are hydrogen, helium, oxygen and carbon. Three of these atoms, oxygen, hydrogen and carbon, together with nitrogen, make up 99% of the atoms in the human body. Hmm, not that impressive. We, smartphones, are more diverse than you, humans. We are made up of silicon, oxygen, aluminium, carbon, iron, copper, gold, tin, nickel and cobalt. Okay, can you stop showing off, Siri? Remember, you owe your existence to stardust too. This reminds me of an interesting and inspiring quote by mystic Rumi. 
You are not a drop in the ocean. You are the ocean in a drop. Wow, truly, pause for effect. Inspiring. But you forgot to include all the plastic waste from your oceans in your drop. Touche. The bottom line is this without carbon, there would be no life on Earth. As discussed in our biodiversity episode, life on Earth really flourished thanks to phytoplankton and then trees, which use sunlight to fuse carbon dioxide and water molecules into glucose and oxygen through photosynthesis. Here's what this article from the worldwildlife.org says about the evolution of our atmosphere. When the Earth first formed, over 4.6 billion years ago, its surface was molten, with almost no atmosphere. As it cooled, the atmosphere formed from gases like carbon dioxide and water vapor that spewed from volcanic eruptions. The water vapor eventually condensed to form Earth's oceans. Carbon dioxide began dissolving into shallow seas and allowed cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, to perform oxygen-emitting photosynthesis. Over time, tiny photosynthetic organisms produce enough oxygen to react with the methane in the atmosphere. Eventually, the methane haze cleared. The mix of gases that support the kinds of life forms on our planet today developed, and the sky became blue. So it is interesting to note that carbon dioxide only represents 0.04% of Earth's atmosphere today, thanks to the role of oceans in carbon sequestration over billions of years. Indeed, CO2 concentration reached 2,000 parts per million, or ppm, 500 million years ago. While 400 ppm, or 0.04%, looks relatively low today, it is double the average level seen on Earth over the past 20 million years, according to Earth.org. And to reach 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees global warming relative to the pre-industrial era, CO2 concentration needs to be above 507 and 618 ppm respectively. At the current rate of progress, we'll be there in a little more than a decade. This Met Office article goes further by explaining the importance of carbon. Life is sustained by the carbon cycle. This process traces the path of carbon through different reservoirs on Earth and the element is constantly moving. Reservoirs effectively store carbon and include our atmosphere, the ocean, plants and humans. Carbon plays a crucial role in maintaining the stability of Earth's atmosphere. The carbon cycle balances carbon levels, meaning that the amount of carbon naturally released from reservoirs equals the amount of carbon naturally stored in reservoirs. Maintaining this balance allows the planet to remain hospitable for life. Since industrial age, human activity has taken carbon out of the ground and burnt it, adding more heat-trapping carbon to the atmosphere. This has led to the climate crisis and global warming. And we go back full circle. The frog in boiling water. Or to put it bluntly, stardusts. Desperately looking to turn themselves into star ashes. Ha ha ha. You're such a comic, Siri. Carbon is the element that cuddled our planet into a cradle for life. If it weren't for this greenhouse effect, Earth's ocean would be frozen solid and pretty much be an ice ball. But to quote South African author Mokokoma Mokonoana, too much of a good thing is bad. Too much of a bad thing is bad too. So too much must be bad. So 
Like Darth Vader in Star Wars, Carbon has a dark side. Okay, you got me depressed. Can we talk about solutions? Patience, you must have, my young Padawan. Do you remember the carbon bounty hunter metaphor? Well, one solution is to put a bounty on carbon's head via the creation of a marketplace for carbon itself. Market participants can buy and sell carbon credits. Polluters can then be forced to offset their emissions by purchasing carbon credits, which should create an economic incentive for them to transition away from burning fossil fuels or invest in nature-based solutions that trap carbon or simply decarbonize their business models and supply chains. So, by pricing carbon emissions, we turn an environmental cost into an economic one. Will this be enough? While the idea is promising, the road is fraught with challenges. Critics argue these markets can be manipulated, creating a veneer of sustainability without real change. The devil, as always, is in the details. Hmm, 666. Yet there is hope. These systems can drive innovation, fund green initiatives, and encourage a shift to a sustainable economy. To better understand how carbon pricing and voluntary carbon markets work, who else to talk to but an expert in the field? Eric Shumsky, head of natural capital solutions at Société Générale. Bonjour, Eric. Merci beaucoup Hello, Eric. Welcome, and thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us about carbon emissions. Hello, Coucou. Thank you for hosting me here on the podcast. So, Eric, we've got a lot to talk about, many questions about carbon markets. First off, please tell us about the different markets that are out there. What percentage of greenhouse gases is represented by these markets? Yes, absolutely. There are several types of carbon markets, but there are two main categories. On the one hand, there's the so-called regulatory market, which is organized by states, or communities of states, as in Europe, with a mechanism known as the ETS, European Trading Scheme. And on the other hand, there's the voluntary carbon market, which is used by private players who wish to offset or make a positive contribution to their carbon footprint. Today, the European market is the most developed. The European market is the largest, accounting for 90% of the global market. But this covers only 25% of global emissions. That's a good start, as far as coverage goes, because when you think about it, those markets cover a lot of carbon. Consider the 54 billion tons of carbon, an astronomical amount of CO2, emitted by fossil fuels. The road ahead is long. My second question pertains to pricing. What formula is used to determine the price, or how is the price fixed, or the market prices then set? I've seen studies that say 50 to $100 per ton, and then up to $2,000 or even $3,000 a ton. Well, just as there are many different carbon markets, there are several ways to determine the price. Take the regulated market. Most often, we're looking at quotas. In other words, governments will allocate a certain number of quotas to each company in the sectors concerned by these markets. It's not all sectors. The list is updated regularly. 
This year, the seaborne shipping industry has been included in the European market. Every year, the allotted quota will be reduced, and companies can buy or sell their carbon credits as need be. The built-in gradual reduction in allotted carbon credits will create scarcity and price pressure. Today, carbon is priced at 100 euros per tonne on the ETS. On the private voluntary market, the price and market mechanisms vary tremendously. The private markets vary wildly from one dollar per tonne to several thousand per tonne for the technology sector. Everything depends on the appetite of the end buyers and the quality and benefits that carbon credits can generate. Some companies promote reducing their carbon footprint as a way of creating a better society, environmental stewardship, and promoting biodiversity. In this case, they're willing to invest in projects that place a high price on carbon credits, and these projects tend to generate the highest prices. I'm interested in your opinion on placing a carbon tax on goods and services. Obviously, the goal here is to change consumer behavior and habits, but the risk of implementing a carbon taxing scheme means that many small and mid-sized businesses will be in peril, unable to pay for increased production costs. Do you see any other unintended consequences? It's true that carbon taxing will increase production costs for many products, but that is the goal of the tax, to encourage a change in production methods. So, yes, as Trumpeter would say, there will be winners and losers due to innovation. Destroying and creating at the same time will lead to a change in society. And we need to be aware of the fallout when raw material and commodity prices increase. This has led to current social unrest. To summarize, I would say that yes, carbon taxes and carbon markets are tools that government authorities can use for those that are the most impacted and have the most trouble adapting. So you're saying no pay, no gain. Focus on the long term. You've made an excellent point. The fourth area I want to address are the carbon reduction methods that draw on the environment. I imagine these may be very good investments. Do you have any examples? Yes, absolutely. First of all, I can remind you what nature-based solutions are and that they have to meet specific criteria. These are projects that will protect or restore ecosystems while at the same time benefiting human society through a number of societal challenges including climate change and carbon sequestration. It promotes food safety and security, access to clean water, better health and protection from climate disasters. Climate change is causing a rise in the sea level and fighting this can be accomplished by projects that restore the shoreline. This will keep salt water out of the fresh water supply, protect agriculture and help control erosion and urban flooding. Promoting and protecting mangroves is an example. That's interesting. Warren Buffett once said that derivatives are financial weapons of mass destruction. Is it possible that these remedies are just covering up the underlying real causes of climate change? I'm thinking particularly about countries and cultures where excessive energy overconsumption and low recycling rates are the issue. The risk is that no reduction will occur. 
Alors oui, c'est un risque qui... So yes, there will always be the risk that these measures will lead to complacency. These markets are controversial. You're giving some players the right to pollute, which allows them to avoid taking concrete measures to reduce CO2 emissions. That's true. Another main criticism is that many projects don't have a clear or verifiable way of measuring emissions or the carbon capture. That's also true. Here's the deal. We live in a time of extreme positions, and the middle ground gets pushed aside. For some, carbon credits will solve the problem. For others, they are evil incarnate, guaranteeing that companies will continue to pollute. I believe the truth is in the middle, with proof being that many private sector initiatives are in place, and they have embraced these markets. You've made some important points. Many players need this to feel confident. They need regulators and inspectors who can guarantee accuracy. That's key to ensuring the market's future. In fact, carbon seems to have a bounty on its head. And as it disappears from the supply lines, you wonder how the price will evolve. This leads me to my last question. What do you think the carbon market would look like in 2050? That's a tough question. One thing is certain. Many steps need to be taken before we get to 2050. Several companies and private institutions have pledged to become climate neutral, inspired by the Paris Agreement. Many of these engagements will be in full force between 2030 and 2035. We can also see that the regulated markets are gradually being harmonized and converged, particularly under the Paris Agreements. The aim is for them to be able to communicate with each other, for players in one country to be able to counter reduction action carried out in another country, while avoiding double counting, and ensuring that the same action is not counted in the report of each country. The market structure will be highly influenced by all of this, and, in my opinion, will see the private voluntary markets converge. They'll go on to develop more carbon capture projects and benefit from better regulated markets, and this will put more pressure on even more industries. I agree. It's clear that the price of carbon credits will increase, forcing the transition. And the public and private players will have to find compromises. The economic arena is going to require Darwinian-style adaptation, because consumers' choices will certainly change. Eric, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for shedding light on this topic and sharing your expertise with our listeners. Thank you. To conclude this episode, I will quote Winston Churchill. However beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. This striking quote requires us to check the results regularly, as even the best and most ingenious plan doesn't always go according to plan. This is the classic case of good intentions having unintended consequences. We should therefore strive for real-world impact, rather than solely relying on financial innovation. They are necessary but not sufficient. Wait, wait, what? Breaking news! Carbon has just escaped from prison, and the bounty has doubled. Let's go! Who you gonna call? Carbon busters?
Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors. And thanks to Eric Shumsky for his insights. I hope this episode has helped you get a better sense of carbon markets and the role they can play in our journey to net zero. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps. If you enjoyed the show, help us spread the word. Please take a minute to subscribe, review, and rate it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. See you at the next episode. While the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional advice.